Hey there, welcome to LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week on the show, we are going to be talking to writer and director Laura Chin, who's got this amazing new memoir out. It's called Acne, and it talks about her life growing up in Florida as part of the Church of Scientology, uh, her battle with very oily skin, which really defined her life during her young years, and also some serious illnesses that were faced by immediate family members of hers. And yet, the book is very funny. I want to stress that. Then, speaking of things that are funny, we've got stand-up comedy from one of our favorites, Mohanad El-Sheki. He'll tell us about the most embarrassing Uber ride ever, featuring him as the passenger. And then, rounding things out, we will hear some lovely music from Jenny Conley, founding member of the Decemberists. She's got a new solo album out. We have a lovely show prepared just for you, dear radio listener. So stick around. It all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This episode of LiveWire was originally recorded in June of 2023. We hope you like it. Let's take a listen. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's going real well. It's nice to see your shining face and to quiz your sparkly mind with a little station <laughs> My glittering mind. That's right. Your glittery brain. Uh, you ready to do a little station location identification examination? Okay. This is where I quiz Elena about somewhere in the country where LiveWire is on the radio. She's got to figure out where I'm talking about. In this city, it is apparently illegal to throw an item across the street. <laughs> this is not giving you any useful information, but it's just an amazing, dazzling detail. I know it's a place with streets, so okay. that, that narrowed narrows down. something sure, down. Sure, It is the fifth least populous state capital in the U.S. So it's a state capital, but it's a place that doesn't have a tremendous number of residents. Juneau, Alaska. Oh, you're in the sort of <laughs> sort of right <laughs> quadrant of the country. You're, you're Like, it's better than if you said Florida, okay? How about this? This city was once home to several notable people, including L. Ron Hubbard, <laughs> actors Gary Cooper and Dirk Benedict, and the musician Charlie Pride. They all lived in this place. Is it Helena, Montana? Oh, my gosh. Did I get it? I was going to say that or South Dakota. <laughs> I am genuinely shocked. Helena, Montana, where we are on the radio on KYPH Radio, part of the Yellowstone Public Radio Network. So shout out to folks out there. Are you ready to keep riding this high right into the actual show? I am amped. All right, take it away. 
from PRX, it's... This week, writer and director Laura Chin. I mean, I've never met anyone who was like extremely funny and had like a great life. (laughs) And like great parents and like a great... I've never seen that. And comedian Mahanad El Sheki. And then he was like, are you into NFTs and crypto? And I was like, honestly, I would have rather if you've said something racist. Like, why? With music from Jenny Conley and our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello. And now, the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks to everyone for tuning in from all across America for this week's episode of Livewire, which is going to be a good one. Uh, We've got a listener question that we posed earlier in the week. We asked our listeners, what's something that took up a ton of brain space for you as a teen, but you no longer think about? This is kind of tied to Laura Chin's memoir called Acne. She was someone who dealt with that, and it was pretty much all her brain could think about. As somebody who also had that same problem in high school, I can very much identify with that. So we're going to hear the listener answers to that question coming up in just a bit. First, though, it's time for the best news we heard all week. This is our little reminder that there is good news happening out there in the world. Elena, what's the best news you heard all week? You are going to love this. First of all, did you know, Luke Burbank, that not every state has its official state fruit declared? Uh, No, but I see an opportunity for us to uh, maybe lead the charge in one of these states where we're on the radio. Right. Well, we're definitely out of luck here in Oregon where the state fruit is decidedly the pear. But there was actually an article about this in a magazine for kids called Scholastic. And a fourth grade class in Madison, Mississippi, was learning about, I think, the state of Kansas, which last year uh, dedicated its first state fruit, the sand plum, which uh, that charge was led by some elementary school kids and the students of Mandale Upper Elementary in Madison, Mississippi were like, well, if they got to play a part in naming their state fruit, we want to have everything to do with the Mississippi state fruit. And their fourth grade teacher, Miss Lisa Parenteau, was out with them at recess after they discussed the article. And she heard her fourth graders going, I want watermelon. I want <sighs> apples. I want grapes. They're like arguing about or let's just say discussing which fruit should be the Mississippi state fruit. Yeah. And she just saw her teacher nose started twitching and she saw an opportunity to make an incredible lesson in physics. Listen to what they did. They contacted the Mississippi State Extension, which is some kind of agricultural entity, and learned about fruit production in the sovereign state of Mississippi. And they learned that maybe watermelon isn't the best choice, but blueberries are the most grown fruit in the state. They learned that blueberries are great because they can be grown industrially or at home in people's private gardens, which they thought was a wonderful kind of egalitarian choice. And then they had to learn how to get this under the noses of the House of Representatives. They called their House rep who showed up 
and did a class visit on how a bill becomes a law. And then they wrote House Bill 1207. She suggested they send handwritten letters persuading lawmakers to pass this bill. So then they got persuasive writing in there. The new official state fruit of Mississippi is the blueberry, thanks to these adorable kids. And they all put on blue shirts and grabbed blue balloons and they went to the state capitol and in the governor's office, they all stood around the governor of Mississippi, Tate Reeves, while he signed the bill into a law. And he posted a photo of it on his social media and said, this is all thanks to the initiative of these fourth grade students. They led the way and rallied the legislature to their cause. That is such a cool story about these young people learning that they actually can have an impact on the world that they're living in. The story that I thought was the best news I heard all week, it actually happened a while ago, but I just sort of found out about it. It actually involves this boat race that I've been very interested in since I watched a Netflix documentary about it. It's called the Golden Globe Race. They started it in 1968, and it was a race around the world. It was sponsored by this newspaper, and the rules were you couldn't stop anywhere, you couldn't get towed by anyone, and you had to sail solo. And a bunch of people left out on this race. Some people lost their minds. One guy did two laps. The winner guy just was like, I'm doing another one. He got too cool with being out there. So the, the race went away, but they revived it in 2018, and they've been having it again. And so in this latest incarnation of the race, there were 16 people who competed, including a South African woman named Kirsten Neuschaefer. She has had this incredible life. She's only 41, but she's lived in all these amazing places. She's ridden her bike up and down these continents. She's just one of these people who is just fearless. So she's out there. She's sailing along. Things are going well. What she has brought along for entertainment, right, are a bunch of books in different languages because she's already a polymath, right? She speaks multiple languages, but she's trying to learn some other maybe less well-known languages. She's got novels in these various (laughs) languages. And one of the books that she's reading while she's out there is by a Finnish guy named Tapio Lentinen, who had actually sailed in the race years ago. And he wrote a book about sailing in this race. And she's out there in the middle of nowhere in the Indian Ocean. She's reading the book written by this Finnish guy. And she hears over her radio that this guy, his boat has sunk in the Indian Ocean, the guy whose book she's reading, and that he is in a lifeboat. (gasps) And she is the closest person to him. So she takes her cell phone out of this locked compartment where it was supposed to be, turns it on, gets the GPS going, sails all through the night, and finds this dude in his lifeboat in the Indian Ocean. OMG. Right? And then he gets on board. They drink rum and celebrate. (laughs) Eventually, this cargo ship is coming by, so they put the Finnish guy on the cargo ship. She locks her phone back up and keeps racing. Elena, would you believe... She won the race. (gasps) What? (laughs) She totally assumed she lost after making a detour to save a Finnish guy. She pulls into the same town in France that I won't try to pronounce because my French is spotty at best. She pulls into the same town that she had left from some eight months earlier. And all of her friends from all over the world are along the like dock and the banks of the water because... She is one, and she had no idea she won the race around the world. <laughs> so uh, shout out to Kirsten Neufschauer for an incredible, incredible accomplishment. And that is the best news that I heard all week. Best 
All right, let's get on over to our first guest. She's been making TV for over a decade as an actor, writer, and director, including the show The Mick and also Children's Hospital. And she created and starred in the critically acclaimed and beloved show called Florida Girls, which was on Pop TV. Her debut memoir, Acne, tackles family, happiness, love, loss, Scientology, very oily skin. BuzzFeed calls it an engaging and touching journey, which it really is. This is Laura Chin, recorded at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland. Hi. Hello, Laura. We're so happy to have you on the show. I'm so happy to be here. Hi. This book is really incredible to me. Like, I, you know, um, they, there are, there's the celebrity memoir that comes out, and, you know, it's fine, but it's just kind of a recitation of events in their life. And then there's what you've done with this book, Acne, which is just take us on a journey. It just every chapter surprised me. It was so funny and so heartfelt. I really enjoyed it. It's because I'm not a celebrity. No. To, is that the problem? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had You've to been really, interviewing too to many celebrities. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you so much. Thank you. It was a, a, a journey to write. Um, a, lot, a lot of sharing, maybe oversharing, maybe TMI, maybe um, mild panic attacks after mm-hmm. turning it in, um, maybe mild panic attacks still knowing that it's out in the world. <laughs> One of the things that you talk about early in the book is the fact that you're mixed race. Yeah. Your father is black, your mother is white, but yeah. you don't maybe physically appear the way some people might expect that to look. How old were you when you figured that out, and what was that like for you? Um, well, my parents didn't tell me I was half black, and I know that um, it seems like something that you could maybe figure out on your own, but if you're, if you're, I was born into a household where every single person had a different skin color, so I never questioned it, and no one ever talked to me about it, so I assumed it didn't mean anything, um, which, like, it shouldn't. <laughs> um, but then, yeah, as I got older, my parents moved me from Los Angeles, um, where you could maybe get away with having that belief system to Florida where yeah <laughs> yeah where that belief system doesn't fly so I, I quickly when I was nine years old I went to public school and quickly learned that um, skin color is a really big deal um, <laughs> and, and came home and asked my mom about it and she was like we should have talked to you about this a long time ago yeah <laughs> so I think back then it was less about figuring out my racial identity and figuring out what racial identity meant you know and like mm-hmm, trying yeah. to catch up with that um your mom spins you a fantasy about what Florida is going to be like, and you're moving out there, I think, to Clearwater, right, which is a big center of Scientology. A lot yeah. of people may not know that. That was something your family was involved in when you were young. And then when you got to Florida, it did not align with the stories that you were being told about what Florida was going to be like. Yeah, they, they sold us on, like, that it was a beach town and that we would be making sandcastles all the time. You know, like, it was very <laughs> much sold as, like, this magical place. And then we showed up at a house that was condemned like there were Whoa. condemned stickers on the windows um and uh and there was like uh our, we, there was no kitchen in the house like there was like a room where a kitchen used to be that smelled like food had been cooked in it but <laughs> there was no sign of like um a stove or a fridge so it was it was tricky um I definitely <laughs> felt like I had been conned um but and it was hot like so mm. hot yeah it's it's traumatizing I think people need to have more empathy for Florida honestly right. um I, I agree do. with you I do I think when you're that f-ing hot <laughs> it's hot ha- it's you it's hard to be normal and make like right. rational decisions yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> and I don't, I don't hear that talked about enough. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. there's a lot of, like, Florida man, Florida woman, you know, like, there's a lot of, like, finger pointing um, at Florida, but there's not enough empathy for what we're going through. Yes. Temperature-wise. I spent a summer in Miami, and it was the craziest summer of my life just based on humidity. Yeah. It's it, like it bends reality around it. And you're suddenly like, maybe I could do meth in my yeah. car. Yeah, right. with an alligator. With an alligator. Yeah. 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 On that note, we should probably take a quick break here on Livewire. <laughs> we're talking to the writer, Laura Chin, about her book, Acne. Uh, we're going to be back with more with Laura in a moment here on Livewire. <laughs> Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners... Uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. Uh, probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm-hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including... Uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, And, Elena, uh, one more thing, that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm-hmm. here to talk about is you keeping Livewire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to Livewire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We're at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon this week. And we are talking uh, with the writer, Alora Chin, um, about uh, her book, Acne. Um, now, one of the things that I noticed in this book was that you had a lot of moments in your in your growing up life and even in your adulthood where something kind of embarrassing was happening and you sort of converted that into humor, like you were trying to laugh along with everyone to sort of stay one step ahead. And you're also a very funny person. This book is funny. Your TV stuff is funny. Do you think there's any truth to the idea that like trauma and tragedy makes somebody funny, builds into comedy? Or is it just bad things happen to everyone and some people unrelatedly happen to be funny? (laughs) And you're one of them. I mean, I think it's a coping mechanism for sure. I think it's, you know, it's a protection. You don't have to ever get too serious with anybody because you can joke around with them. You know, like, it's it's like um, a mental illness that people enjoy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's kind of, yeah. I mean, I've never met anyone who was like, extremely funny and had like a great life. 
<laughs> and like right. great parents and like a great, no, I've never seen that. Right. Um, but I also think there are people who go through like extensive trauma and aren't hilarious. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, I don't think it's a rule. Um, the, the title of this book is Acne and it deals a lot with your skin when you were, again, a teenager and into your adulthood. When did you first notice something different was going on for you than the like typical teenager, you know, hormonal stuff? Oh, I, it's, it always felt like I was the only one who had, and I know that's not true. It's just narcissism, I guess. But <laughs> like, it just, it always seemed like everyone else around me had like an occasional pimple and I was like a face full of acne. But I, I, I think like maybe year five or something, you know, like maybe my like second round of Accutane, I was like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> oh, wow. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it was that. It was like trying things and having it not go away and and then the older I got, then you start to, you know, everyone else starts to really grow out of it. And you're, like, kind of growing more into it somehow. <laughs> I had um, not great skin when I was in high school. And it was the centerpiece of my whole life, you know, just thinking about it all the time. And one of the things you do in this book, I think, that's so interesting is you really describe how central to your life it can be, particularly when you're a teenager and you're insecure. For people who have had the luck to not know what it's like, can you kind of describe what it was, what it was like for you to have this going on? I don't want to talk to those people. <laughs> um, I don't like talking to people who have never had acne. Um, it, it does. It, it takes over your whole everything. Every conversation, everyone who's, you know, if you're looking at somebody, you're thinking they're staring at your skin. Um, it, everywhere you go, everything you wear, you know, there's all these like insane rules about like you can't wear red if you have, you know, mm -hmm. like you become obsessive about this thing. And, and even, you know, in your mind, it's so much you know, it's so awful for other people. Like you think other people are having a bad day because you have <laughs> acne, um, which is, you know, insane. And when I see somebody else with a breakout on their face, I think nothing of it. I, I don't sure. think anything. I think people are gorgeous and all skin is gorgeous. And I'm like, it's nothing. But when it's me, I'm like, I'm a monster. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough. You write in the book that you had uh, a face for TV, but the skin for radio. To which I would say, how dare you, Laura Chin. <laughs> Ooh, I upset a lot of uh, radio DJs with that. <laughs> um, now, uh, another part of this book, uh, a pretty substantial part, is um, your relationship with your brother and your, your brother's illness. He was your older brother, and when he was pretty young, like late, maybe late teens, mm -hmm. he, was, he was diagnosed with a tumor that ultimately robbed him of his sight and his sound, and eventually his life. Um, the book really kind of walks the line uh, between, I mean, I guess maybe, again, using humor as a coping mechanism, and you write about this, this point where you're sort of admitting your brother to hospice. Yeah. But he's always wanted to go to this place called Freedom Village, which was like a place where, where people could live with assistance but live on their own. And he asks your mom if you're at Freedom Village, and she has a really hard, because he doesn't have sight or sound at this point, so he has a real, your mom has a really hard decision to make. Yeah, well, yeah, because he couldn't hear or see, and he was bound to a wheelchair at that point. He lost the ability to walk, and he really, yeah, he had this dream of living in an assisted facility, and he was 20, 
one at the time and he really wanted to move out and get a place of his own. And, you know, the doctors told us he has like a couple of months left, you know, so they were like, it's time to move him into hospice. And when we were at hospice, he being in a new place, he kind of sensed he was somewhere new. And he asked my mom, am I at Freedom Village? Like, did I finally get my own apartment? And she looked at me and we were like, oh God. And we were basically like, we can either try to explain to him with like sign language and his, like a very small amount of his like brain that's functioning that he's dying, you know, and going into hospice. It might have taken us months to to tell him this. Or we could just say, yeah, you're in Freedom Village um, and you're in your own apartment, you know? And so my mom and I looked at each other and my mom was just like, yeah, you're in Freedom Village, buddy, you know? And he was so happy um, that he got his own apartment. And it was like this, it was this like incredible moment of like him feeling like he had gotten away from home and he was free. Um, and then my mom and I being like, is there like a place in hell for us now? Like, what is this? Um, what is the, what are the morals yeah, it's here? It's called Containment Village <laughs> for people that um, lied to but their. It, but ultimately it was like so wonderful because he spent the last like, you know, remaining weeks of his life like thinking that he had gotten out and was independent and and it became more and more clear to him that he was dying you know like he he sort of he he went out and was able to process his death as well but it was like much better than telling him he was in hospice um but yeah kind of dark was it was it hard for you to revisit this stuff in your life because it is it's it's really intense and then you're kind of excavating it to to write this book. Yeah, I mean I definitely cried a lot while writing it. It definitely was like um you know, cathartic, but also stuff that I talk about in therapy all the time, you know, like mm-hmm. my therapist got like a break. They're like, "Thank God, she's writing a book." <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> Um, I love that idea of misdirection from a therapist, like throwing a ball for a dog. Yeah, maybe get a book deal. Maybe you should write this down so I can stop hearing about it. Um, Yeah, Um, it was it was really healing, but it wasn't. I didn't write about anything that was so tender that I was like, I can't. You know, like I, I, you know, there's there's far darker stuff that I'm saving for my next book. Um, Really. I sure hope not for you because there's some very serious <laughs> moments in this book. I know. Well, which is also, I want to stress, a very funny book. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's not, please don't, don't get the wrong scared. idea. Don't be scared. What I love about it is that it reminds me of, of things from my own life where when you describe the situation, it sounds really dark. But when you think about the things that happened inside of it, there's absurdity, there's levity, yeah. there's joy, there's like a lot of tenderness. And so the dark stuff has so many layers to it, which I think that takes a lot of work to be able to really hit all those levels because people immediately, when they read about the situation, they go, oh, this is sad. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Did you have like a like a strategy for, I know you write comedy and you know how to tell stories on television. I think I just think things are funny that are sad. You know, <laughs> like I, I think it's just, I think I just genuinely find a lot of humor in things that, um, I, I laugh a lot more at like movies that have like deep emotional through lines, you know, <laughs> than I do. <laughs> I'm a sociopath. Um, I'm realizing it right now Terms in real time. Just the yuck fest. <laughs> but like I, if I care more, if I'm emotionally invested in something, like I'll laugh a lot more. And, and I feel like there's like a really thin line between like hysterical laughing and hysterical crying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I experienced that for such a large part of my life. You know, if, if I'm in, a, in the audience somewhere and something's taking itself too seriously, like I get church giggles and I have to excuse church myself. Giggles. Yeah, like I get 
really intense, like hot sweats, and I'm like, oh no, like if if the play, if I'm watching a play and the person's like on their deathbed and everyone's really serious on stage, I'm like, oh no, like I'm gonna laugh, and I can't help it, and and I have to leave, I have to leave the the, is that, the audience. Is that why you had to leave Scientology because of the church giggles? <laughs> Too much church giggles. Yeah, so that's that's been my my relationship with with humor. I think is that I, I find sad things to be quite funny. And yeah, some people agree and other people are like, what's wrong with you? Yeah. (laughs) One of the things that I also found really interesting about this book is that you are both very suspicious of like woo-woo stuff. Yeah. Like for, in terms of like new age health remedies, but you've had, along with your skin, you had like some back problems. You've had some health challenges, which you also write, have been helped for you through stuff that has you actively rolling your eyes. Yeah. Like one you call your ghost doctor. Yep, yep. How yeah. do you hold these two things at the same time? I don't Not know. believing in it, but feeling like it healed you. <laughs> well, because I, I go into everything very skeptical, and then I'm I'm usually wrong. Like I go into everything being like, oh God, crystals, here we go. You know, and then the woman puts crystals all over me, and I'm like, oh my god, I've never felt better in my life. <laughs> you had this doctor tell you your skin was inflamed because your brain was inflamed. She was like, You're furious. Yeah. She was like, And that worked. Yeah. You yeah. punched a pillow. It worked. I mean, I, I punched many pillows. Like, <laughs> pillows are terrified of me. Um, <laughs> terrified. Um, like, this woman was like, your skin is red because your mind is red and your emotions are red and you're hot and you're angry and you need to get anger out and you're mad at your parents and you're mad at the world and da-da-da. And at the time, I was like, I'm not mad at all, actually. Um, I'll make several jokes and I'll be fine. <laughs> um, and then I sort of slowly, through going to her and, and sort of realizing how incredibly furious I was, um, it helped my skin a ton releasing that kind of like pent up rage, you know? And yeah, and the more you sort of see these sort of magical things start to work, the more you're, you know, the skepticism goes away. Mm-hmm. I, I think, I don't want to sound pat, but I do think that there's a big piece of this book that's about self-acceptance, about you trying to accept yourself, you know, however you are and whatever you've been through. Do you feel like you've learned how to do that for yourself? And can any of us really truly accept ourselves? I want to end on kind of a light question. <laughs> Um, that's, it's, it's a fantastic question. I think, um, I think I get better and better and better at it. I think writing a book about something that I carried so much shame for was extremely helpful, you know, like towards that. And I think seeing how, if I'm vulnerable, other people are vulnerable with me and I connect with humans more, not less. And I'm actually safer, not less safe. You know, the more vulnerable you are, the more you show your flaws, the more you're open. Um, and all of those things are, um, incredibly validating. You know, you're like, oh, I'm not a monster. I'm not a freak. You know, like other people feel these things and we're not alone. Um, and, and those, that helps with self-love. That helps with self-acceptance. But then, oh my God, there are days where I'm just like, I can't believe I'm allowed to breathe air. Um, (laughs) and you know, it fluctuates, but it's definitely, if it was a graph, it's definitely gone up since childhood. Um, and maybe there's like an ending, but I think it's probably in a monastery, you know, like (laughs) I don't think it's like through, you know, the entertainment industry. I don't really? think it's like you reach the top of the entertainment industry and you have your Academy Award and you're like, now I like myself. Right. No. I Even don't think though you're like having that. great success. You directed a movie with Laura Linney and Woody Harrelson. Yeah. That's coming out soon, right? It's previewing. I yeah, mean, that's yeah. amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I wrote a script, um, finished a script during the pandemic, and then um, we got those actors involved, and we got a studio involved, and yeah, we shot the movie last summer, and we're editing it right now. 
Well, yeah, it sounds like it's going to be amazing. Those are a couple of top-notch folks. Laura Chin, the book is Acne. Thanks for coming on LiveWire. Thank you so much. That was Laura Chin right here on LiveWire. Her new book, Acne, is available now. Hey, special thanks this week to Susan Stratton of Portland, Oregon. Susan is part of the LiveWire member community and is generously supporting us with a donation each month, which we are very thankful for because it's genuinely how we can keep doing this show. So, Susan, thank you very much for keeping LiveWire going. You're listening to LiveWire. Of course, each week we ask our listeners a question. In honor of the theme of Laura's book, uh, we asked our listeners, what is something that took up a ton of brain space for you as a teen that you no longer think about? Elena has been collecting up those responses. What are you seeing? Oh, (laughs) I love this one from Linsel. Linsel spent a lot of time thinking about quicksand survival techniques. (gasps) Thank you. (laughs) I assumed... It was either going to be quicksand or hot lava that was going to take me. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then that whole scene in The Princess Bride when they're in the fire swamp. Oh, that, yeah. You know, I thought The Princess Bride was possibly a documentary when I was sure. like seven. So, Do we need to talk about the never-ending story? Because oh, uh, yes. I think that's where my trauma lives. Utreyu gets stuck in there or the horse does or something? Yeah, or text the horse with Utreyu. Oh, mm. oh, man. Yeah. What is another thing that used to take up a lot of brain space for one of our listeners? How about this one from Tess? Tess says, for the six months I was learning to drive, I obsessed over backing around a corner. But who actually does that? (laughs) (laughs) It's true. (laughs) I can't think of, yeah, I'm 47. I can't think of a time when I've actually done that. The other problem now for me, I don't know what's going on in your vehicle, Elena, but I've got one of those little cameras that that now helps uh, me see what's going on behind the car. But occasionally I'll be in a different car or driving like my dad's truck and it doesn't have the camera. All of my abilities to operate a motor vehicle are atrophying because of the technology that's helping me in my car. Amen. I used to parallel park like a dream. After mm-hmm. 10 years in Pittsburgh, I mean, I could parallel uh-huh. park. Like it, it was it was like challenge accepted. But now <laughs> I'm like, oh, I better look on the television so it'll tell me what to do. All right. One more <laughs> thing that one of our listeners spent far too much time in their youth worrying about. Well, this one I think is for the younger crew members. It's Marin spent a lot of time thinking about promposals. Do you know this term? I do know about this term. I got asked to the prom across a crowded cafeteria and somebody just like pointed at me and then pointed at the prom banner and then made like the shrug emoji sign. But, there, you know, and that's how <laughs> I that's how I got asked to the prom. <laughs> I actually got asked to the prom by somebody who approached me and said, I know you're going to say no, but would you go to the prom with me? And then I was like, well, I have to say yes just to prove them wrong. And so I did. And we had a lovely time. So <laughs> Reverse psychology. <laughs> it worked. It worked. So, all right. Thanks to everyone who sent in a response to our listener question. Uh, we got another one for next week's show coming up at the end of today's program. In the meantime, our next guest is one of our all-time favorite comedians. He was born in Libya. He spent some years in Portland, which is where we first met him before he moved to New York City to work on Full Frontal with Samantha Bee. He's currently the co-host of the political comedy podcast, Reply Guys. Uh, Take a listen to Mohanad El-Sheki right here on LiveWire.
uh, last time I was in Portland, I called this Uber to come pick me up, and uh, this guy shows up in a Tesla, and I was like, you know, amazing, a fellow intellectual, you know. Uh, <laughs> and I get in front of his car, and he uh, looks at me, and he's like, is this, is this carry-on and suitcase yours? And I was like, the, the, the ones I'm holding? I was like... Uh, yeah, I'm gonna roll the dice here and say, yeah, they're mine. And then he was like, I don't have space for this. And I was like, what? And he was like, I don't have space for this. You should have let me know beforehand. And I was like, you know what, my bad. I should have let you know that I would have those with me. I just thought that you could tell from context clues, like the fact that you're picking me up from the airport. Like, <laughs> I, like are you new here on this planet? Like, what's going on? Do you think I work here? I don't, I just, I just arrived. And then I got into his car, and, and, and he, you know, he saw my name on his phone, and he was like, hey, man, uh, how do you say this so I know how to address you? And I was like, no need to address me. Like, <laughs> whatever you think it is, just keep it here. I'm sure it's correct, you know? Uh, and he insisted, and I was like, it's Muhammad. And he was like, what? I was like, it's Muhammad. And he was like, that's interesting. And I was like, keep it going. I want to hear it. Uh, and then he said, it's just here in the States, it's usually pronounced Muhammad. And I was like, honestly, a great point. You know, like it's, <laughs> it's not how names work, but I, I, I really appreciate the perspective. This is great. Uh, and then like, I remember halfway through the ride, he just looks at me out of nowhere and he's like, hey man, I'm gonna ask you something. And I know this is gonna be like a, maybe like a white dude thing to ask. And I was like, yeah, you don't need to tell me. Like my eyes gave me the heads up. Uh, <laughs> and then he was like, are you into NFTs and crypto? And I was like, honestly, I would have rather if you've said something racist, like why? <laughs> I was like, this is the worst thing anyone has said to me. Why would you, like, no. And the place he was driving me to, so he was driving me to a, uh, a prison here in Portland, and, there, and, and because I used to teach a workshop there, and, but he didn't know that was the reason I was going there. <laughs> so he asked me if I had any plans for the day, and I was like, my man, I don't have any plans today or the next 10 to five years, hopefully. I, I just decided this morning, I was just so tired of running. Like, and I've, I think it's time for me to save consequences, you know, serve some justice for like the families. And, and, and then he stopped talking to me. Uh, so I think it worked. Uh, and I love that he thought I was walking into a prison with a carry-on. Just, just be like, oh, hello, you got get, get room service here? What's the vibe, huh? Not, not the worst car ride I've ever had, you know? Like, but like, because uh, maybe like 10 years ago or so, I was driving my car uh, back home, and uh, uh, I'm originally from, from Libya, not to brag. Uh, and back then, you'd drive your car, and there were like checkpoints everywhere. And most of these checkpoints were controlled by these like uh, like religious and like militias and stuff like that. And when I say uh, like religious militias, I mean groups like uh, ISIS. I'm not sure if you guys remember them. They used to be big on like YouTube and stuff. Like, I, 
haven't posted in a while. And I think about them sometimes, you know, I'm like, did they make it through the pandemic, you know? Uh, which I'm sure they did, you know, like those guys always wore masks, so... Uh, So I'm, I'm sure ISIS is doing fine. But uh, so last time I was traveling, I was going through uh, the TSA. And uh, sometimes when you go through the TSA, you see something in your bag that you don't recognize. So they have to take it out and look at it. And the thing that they saw in my carry-on was this notebook. You know, and if you're listening to this on the radio, imagine a notebook. Uh, <laughs> And the agents were like mesmerized by it. Like, this, we've never seen anything like this before. And uh, one of them opened it and he was looking inside. And I was like, what are you doing? And he was like, oh, I just want to see what's inside. And I was like, I inside the notebook? Probably words, you know? Like, <laughs> are you not familiar with words? They're like speech that you hear with your eyes? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then we had some back and forth. And then he finally you know, gave it to me. And the only reason I didn't want to look inside is because I, I write my jokes here, and I don't write them fully. I just like write one line to remind me what the joke is. And on the way at the airport, this is a new notebook, so I wrote like this line that I was, was like, I should tell this line, it would be so funny. So this notebook was new, it was empty, and all it had was... I'm sure ISIS is doing just fine. Uh, and uh, I don't know how to explain that to Homeland Security, you know? I can't be like, no, you guys don't get it. I just think it's funny. Uh, Also, after the pandemic and uh, the lockdown, I felt like my, my uh, small talk skills have became bad, so I decided to you know, work on them. And I was like, there is no better place than the next time I take an Uber or a Lyft or something. Uh, so I did that in New York City, and uh, I get into this Uber last month. Uh, and two minutes in, the guy starts playing music. And every song he played was something I either recently listened to or something I really liked. So, you know, I, I had to let him know. You know, so after each song he played, I would say, what a great song, man. Or I'd say, oh, wow, look at that. He's doing it again. You know, just a fun guy in the back. We've all done it. And I, uh, I didn't do that for long. I'd say, like, 20 minutes. Uh, and he did not reply to me once the whole time. And I was like, I'm on a mission. You know, I'll get to him eventually. But then the music stopped. And what started playing next was uh, my stand-up comedy, just like blaring on the speakers. And I was so terrified. And I was like, uh, uh, hey, man, uh, do you know who this is? And he was like, what? And I was like, the guy doing stand-up on the speakers, like, do you know who that is? And he was like, no. And I was like, it's, it's me. And he was like, okay, cool. <laughs> and I was like, my man, are you kidnapping me and gaslighting me? I don't like, I don't like this. What are you doing here? What, what does that mean? And, he, and, and, and I was so terrified. I was like, something bad is going to happen. You know? And then I got to my destination. And he was like, okay, man, good night. Uh, and I was like, 
my man, I don't know if this is a prank or something. I don't know what's going on here, but I don't like it. And he was like, I don't know what you're saying right now. And I was like, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm never going to forget this. And then I opened the door and I you know, started leaving. I took my bag out. I pulled my phone out of the charger, which then realized was an aux cord. <laughs> So, just to clarify, it's, uh, it's been my phone connected to the speakers this whole time. And now there's a guy in New York City who thinks I'm a psychopath. I, because what happened was I got into this man's car, the stranger's car, and I played my own music for 20 minutes. And then after each song that I played, <laughs> I said, what a great song, man. <laughs> oh, look at that, he's doing it again. Like a psycho DJ. And then did not stop there, mm -mm, no. And then I played my own stand-up. <laughs> and then I said, hey, do you recognize the voice? Yes, the guy in the back, it's me right here. The voices are matching, it is definitely me, I can assure you, 100%. Do you like, are there cameras around or something? Is this gonna be on YouTube? Yeah, it's me. Are this small talk working from you? No? Okay. I haven't talked to people since. Uh, anyway, thank you so much, everyone. I hope you have a good night, thank you. Mohanad Alsheki, everyone. That was Mohanad Elsheki right here on Livewire. You can find Mohanad on Instagram. He's at Mohanad.Elsheki for more information on his shows and podcasts. I'm Luke Burbank right here with Elena Passarella. We have to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. When we come back, we're going to hear some music from Jenny Conley from The Decemberists. You don't want to miss it, so stay with us. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Okay, before we get to our musical guest this week, a little preview of what we're doing next week on the program. It's going to be a special, I'm trying a new thing, Elena, where I say program. I love it. It's the way that Southern ladies refer to soap operas. Program. My programs. My programs. Uh, it's going to be a special holiday program <laughs> of Livewire, and we are going to be spreading some cheer with our friend, the comedian and actor Paul F. Tompkins. Of course, Paul is is comedy and podcast royalty. He's been on hundreds of episodes of Comedy Bang Bang and also the co-host of the very popular podcast Stay F. Homekins and The Neighborhood Listen, along with Spontanea Nation. 
He is going to talk to us about a holiday-related topic, which is the weirdly passive-aggressive carolers who hang out at the Tam O'Shanter, probably the most famous, if only, Scottish steakhouse in Los Angeles. There was apparently a very tense version of Oh Holy Night that he witnessed. He's going to talk to us about that. Then we're going to hear from poet Jose Olivares about his new book of poems. It's called Promises of Gold, and it's just really incredible. It's a love letter to all the different kinds of love that we can experience in life, romantic love, friendship, all of it. It's all in Jose's amazing new book. And he's going to read a couple of poems, uh, which are pretty incredible. Finally, we're going to wrap the whole thing up uh, in a in an adorable little holiday bow with some music from an artist whose voice will definitely warm you up this holiday season, Esme Patterson. She's going to play an original Christmas song that she wrote about her family. And as always, we are going to be looking to get your answers to our listener question. Elena, what are we asking our listeners for next week's show? We want to know what is your favorite holiday tradition? Yeah! All right. If you have a response to that, send it on in uh, via Facebook or Twitter or wherever you do your social media stuff. We are at LiveWire Radio pretty much everywhere. This is LiveWire from PRX. Our musical guest this week is a multi-instrumentalist, probably best known for her 23-year tenure as a founding member of the Decemberists. Her latest solo album, Tides, Pieces for Accordion and Piano, is incredible, and it is available now. This is Jenny Conley, recorded at the Patricia Reeser Center for the Arts in Beaverton, Oregon. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Man, I'm excited. Well, it's awesome to have you here. I'm curious, though, about this instrument that you're currently wearing. When did Mm -hmm. you start playing accordion? I think um, around 2000, maybe 99, um, I wanted to have a portable instrument because we were on the road. My first band, Coloba, we would tour a lot and go mm-hmm. to these Coloba um, festivals and there was these jam sessions and I was like, mm, I don't get to play. So I ended up buying an accordion ever since I've been addicted. Was that before the Decemberists came around? Yes. So you were playing the accordion. You didn't have to like have a meeting with the other Decemberists no. and goes, I'm going to explore my accordion phase. I, I wasn't that good at it, <laughs> but when I met Colin from the Decemberists, he was like, I heard you play accordion. I'm like, yeah, I do. Um, <laughs> I could just play the piano side. I'm a pianist, right? So I, this was a mystery to me. Um, but <laughs> Colin was really interested in the sound, so we made the first, the first record that's only accordion because it's like, let's make this acoustic record. And so now I do all the things, but I still really love to play. Is it really hard to learn? I mean, it seems like your brain is t- doing two wildly different things. It's true. I feel like you're playing three instruments. Like you're playing piano, you're playing like a chord organ over here, and then you're playing a bagpipe, you know, pushing in and out <laughs> here. So Yeah, it looks like it's a workout too, depending on the song. Yeah, and I feel like it's harder than the piano, um, but I do like the load-in better than all my keyboards I have to take on tour. So I think Fred Armisen, who played in bands for a long time before he was the Fred Armisen we know, said being in a band is just being like an unpaid moving company. Yeah, it's, it's mostly about schlepping. Yeah. Yeah, and waiting around. Um, well, what song are we going to hear off your new album? Well, um, I'm going to play a song called Hawk. Um, I did a... I did a residency at the Southwester, which is a cool trailer park in Long Beach, Washington. And I proposed to do seven pieces on the accordion in the seven Greek modes, which are different types of scales with kind of different sounds than we're used to. So I did each song 
looking at the scenario that I was um, seeing at the coast there, and this first one's called a hawk. So I want you to try to imagine a hawk up in a tree, scoping out the scenario, seeing its prey, and then whew, going hunting. So, and it's in the Dorian mode. And um, I could have told you that. You could. Well, here's. Oh, probably. It has a spooky sound. I just want you to hear the sound of it. Um, it's like sad happy. <laughs> it's all the feelings it's how I feel in all one. The time. Sad happy. <laughs> yes. Well, this is Jenny Conley here on Livewire. That was Jenny Conley right here on Livewire. Her latest album, Tides, Pieces for Accordion and Piano, is available now. And that is going to do it for this episode of Livewire. A huge thanks to our guests, Laura Chin, Mohanad Elsheki, and Jenny Conley. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. And our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. 
Molly Pettit is our technical director, and our house sound is by Daniel Blake. Trey Hester is our assistant editor. Our marketing and production manager is Karen Pan. Rosa Garcia is our operations associate. Jackie Ibarra is our production fellow, and Ant Diaz is our intern. Our house band is Ethan Fox Tucker, Sam Tucker, Al Alves, and A Walker Spring, who also composes our music. This episode was mixed by Molly Pettit and Trey Hester. Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank member Susan Stratton of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire team. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And If you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.